The news continues. Let's hand it over to Chris for Cuomo Primetime. Chris? All right, thanks, Anderson. I'm Chris Cuomo, and welcome to Primetime. Happy Veterans Day. Thank you to those who have served and all of the armed forces. You do it on our behalf, and we know it. To the men and women currently serving, those who have retired, all of your families, because we know they make the sacrifice right along there with the enlisted. Thank you to all of you. Now, this is the first Veterans Day in 20 years that the U.S. doesn't have boots on the ground on foreign soil in any active war because the war in Afghanistan is now over. But while our troops are no longer there, too many are dealing with all kinds of illnesses from their time abroad. Did you know 86% of those stationed in Iraq and Afghanistan were exposed to toxic burn pits? These are garbage fires that are filled with things that can throw off noxious chemicals. Sometimes they have jet fuel as an accelerant thrown on them. You know, they're not allowed here. But our men and women spend hours and hours. They live, they sleep. Sometimes they stay in guard in front of these things for weeks, years. Question, why would we make our veterans jump through all these hoops to prove the pits are the cause of their illness before paying for their treatment? Shouldn't we pay for veterans' health care, no matter what the cause? Don't we owe them that? President Biden took some good steps in the right direction. He announced a new series of actions today to make it easier for veterans to get help for burn pit and other illnesses. Biden has said in the past that he thinks his late son, Bo, the brain cancer he had may have been linked to burn pits that he was exposed to during his service in Iraq. On this day, let's not just speak our thanks. We have a problem with talking the talk, but not walking the walk when it comes to our veterans. They are the best of us. It's on the rest of us to respect their service with action. Again, happy Veterans Day. Thank you for your service. Now let's turn to the Rittenhouse double homicide trial nearing an end in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Reminder, this is the trial for the 17-year-old killing uh, two unarmed men and shooting a third armed man in the wake of the police shooting of Jacob Blake in 2020 became symbolic of the nation's polarization over gun rights, racism, and police brutality. This trial has the nation similarly divided. In fact, the division found its way onto the witness stand in the form of an eyewitness who backed up Rittenhouse's self-defense claim. Here's some of the testimony. Rosenbaum is already charging Kyle from behind. Hear it and saw it in real time. Rosenbaum is lunging towards him very clearly and Kyle fires. All eyewitnesses are not equal. Why they say what they say matters and should be tested on the stand. The judge allowed that man to testify as an eyewitness without allowing the prosecution to tell the jury that the witness, Drew Hernandez, works for a fringe right website and has posted anti-BLM content. Does Real America's Voice have any sort of um, political uh, bias or agenda or anything like that? I'm, what is the it goes to the bias of the witness, Your Honor. Uh, the bias in what respect? I, I assume that people... We, uh, as I commented at the beginning, this is not a political trial. And um, I, I don't know how you would isolate um, a person's particular politics uh, and determine that that person is going to... Uh, evaluate the evidence one way or another. 
Seriously? The judge doesn't know how someone's politics might shape how they describe the events? Is it not odd that he paints a decidedly starker picture than others and of the video that we've seen in describing what Rittenhouse was about and how he handled himself? This was the second day in a row of vexing attacks from the bench on the prosecution. There was nearly a mistrial yesterday when the lead prosecutor enraged the judge about his line of questioning, and he had a couple more clashes today. I'm a little bit challenged when you say, uh, is there something that I'm saying that draws the face that you're making? I, Go ahead. Say what you I want to say. I have to say, Your Honor, yesterday I was uh, the target of your ire for disregarding your orders. Today, the defense is disregarding your order. Yesterday, uh, as I said, I, I was under the court's ire. You know, I don't want to talk about... Well, Why don't I, we just... I think it's a fundamental fairness issue, Your Honor. All right, say what you if, want to say. If I'm being held to uh, obey the court's orders, I'm asking that the defense be held to that, too. I am going to interrupt you, and I'm, then I'm going to let you talk again. But I was talking yesterday about the Constitution of the United States and how the Supreme Court has interpreted it for 50 years. Maybe he's been on the bench too long, but the judge seems to have been forgotten. He seems to have forgotten that it's not about him. Of course he's the referee of the trial, but we're going to talk to some big experts about whether or not this obviously goes beyond that and whether his decisions, let alone a lot of this discussion in front of the jury, may be coloring and prejudicing justice. So the jury's not going to know that that testimony came today from someone with a clear prejudice. And surprise, that eyewitness helped confirm the version of events that Rittenhouse portrayed on the stand Wednesday, when the judge refused to let the prosecution tell the jury that the accused had mentioned shooting looters at a BLM protest sometime before all this happened. Instead, the defendant painting himself as just wanting to help and then running for his life and cornered that night. He said he did not intend to kill anyone. Now, this is key. Didn't intend to kill anyone. But then he admitted that he used deadly force on purpose. Question for the jury. Can you knowingly use deadly force and not intend for someone to wind up dead? The only survivor of the shootings today said, don't let any of those tears fool you. I think anytime you see your would-be murderer on the stand, it, it, it's emotional. To me, it seemed like a, a child who had just gotten caught doing something that he wasn't supposed to, more upset that he was caught and less upset about what he had done. He murdered two men and he attempted to murder me. Closing arguments are Monday. There could be a verdict next week. Will the jury believe the accused to be a victim or a vigilante? Let's take it to the better minds. Mark O'Mara was George Zimmerman's defense attorney in the infamous Trayvon Martin murder trial and helped get Zimmerman acquitted. And Laura Coates, former federal prosecutor and CNN senior super duper legal analyst. It's good to have you both. Uh, first, let's talk a little bit uh, about uh, the judge in these sidebars, although sometimes in the uh, in the presence of the jury and then where we think things stand. Uh, the going after the prosecutor the way he does, not letting uh, the prosecutor ask Rittenhouse about what he had said about shooting looters at BLM protests in the past and not getting to ask that witness about the place that he works and the politics behind it. Fair or unfair? 
Well, I think it's unfair. Of course, you don't want to put your thumb on the scale to aid prosecutors because, of course, there is already a lot of weight when you have a jurisdiction versus an individual. There's already a lot of things tacked against that defendant. But not putting the thumb on the scale is not the same thing as tying the prosecutor's arm behind their back when there are legitimate purposes for introducing certain aspects of evidence. Now, arguably, the prosecutor may have towed the line or crossed in some capacity, but the judge's pearl clutching was a little bit theatrical for me because there were some legitimate interests in allowing for the jurors to get the full context, to test the credibility of the witnesses for whom the defense would like you to believe. If the jury are the ultimate fact finders and assessors of credibility, they have to know the relevant information. And that includes any indication of bias. How is it, yeah, how is it bad to, or how does it offend justice or offends uh, the rules of trial practice to ask a witness about where they work and what their political predisposition is when they're giving eyewitness testimony that just happens to be conveniently all in favor of someone who meets with their political aims. It's to you, Laura. Is that from, oh, well, can I say, you know, we ha- we're, on the one hand, simply asking the question does not assume all of his political leanings. And the the assessment of credibility and asking the person where they work and what the motivation was when they were posting certain material or making statements that were in support of extrajudicial statements, et cetera, that's relevant not to find out who this person voted for. And that's what the judge failed to understand here. Nobody was asking who you voted for, what your politics were. It was directly to the point of, is there some reason for this jury to understand or to question whether your eyewitness testimony or your testimony here today is being shaped by whatever bias you might bring in. Now, the jury may ultimately say, you know what, this has nothing to do with it. But that's for the jury to parse through and understand. And there was nothing inherently extra prejudicial against this defendant by having them say, What's your background and sense of how you came to this case? If it were one of his relatives, wouldn't we want to know that? Right. Certainly we would. Yeah. No, listen, I, I totally get it. I was a little shocked by that, especially by someone who's such a veteran. Uh, this judge is the longest serving uh, member of the Wisconsin bench. Um, now, why am I only talking to Laura? Uh, because I'm trying to get Marco Mara's audio back up. We're having a little communication issue there. So okay. while we're trying to do that, uh, let's... I thought you were just trying to talk to me, Chris. I, well, was, I was enjoying the conversation. I mean, I mean, what do you, you mean? Are, you are there was the an upgrade. audio issue? You are the upgrade. There's okay. no question. <laughs> Uh, but let's, while we're trying to get him, let you and I listen to yeah. and the audience some of Drew Hernandez. That's the witness that we're talking about and how he characterized the events of that night. Here's some of the testimony. Yeah. Your videos that you have captured of these incidents that you call riots, they're very uh, slanted against the people who are rioting. You characterize them as Antifa, Black Lives Matter, rioters. Correct? Because they are rioting in the footage, yes, absolutely. Have you ever posted anything on social media? Yes. In support of Kyle Rittenhouse? One could argue yes. What did you make of that? One could argue yes. You know, I'm always a little tickled by answers that are not yes or no because it undermines one's credibility when you try to get too cheeky. Again, things for jurors to understand and consider because some things you build your credibility by simply conceding a point. We know this in front of a judge 
or in front of a jury. But the idea of the footage is so important here because it's very limited amount of footage, which is why one of the reasons they wanted to have Kyle Rittenhouse actually testify for the defense, because of course you want to give greater context to this and what's being told. Also notice that the language that was used by this witness really echoes some of the earlier concerns, Chris, that the judge allowed you to refer to the people who are victims, not as victims, but as rioters or looters or arsonists, building again an opportunity for the defense to characterize the level of aggression, if any, towards him and entitling him in his mind to use self-defense, let alone lethal force here. But ultimately, again, the idea of somebody answering these questions in front of the jury and and narrating, the, the video should speak for itself. But also Rittenhouse has spoken for himself. And you had other witnesses who were trying to buttress what he said. The question is whether the prosecution has done enough in the beginning in their case in chief to head off, anticipate and undermine these claims. What's your gut on whether or not the prosecution has met its burden? You know, it's a very difficult case, and primarily because you cannot extract and divorce from the political, the sociological, the cultural, the actual um, everyday conversations that were happening at this time. Remember, if you've seen the buildup, and we all have, from the time that these shootings occurred up till now, we have seen Kyle Rittenhouse be embraced by certain spectrums of the media, by certain um, quiet chat rooms, been echo chambers, and certain segments of our society who believe that his attempt to be in the presence of this protest was somehow a good thing, a usurpation of law enforcement ability, a, uh, a supplement to what they could not do. Now, on the flip side, you see this as somebody who is an armed person in the middle of a chaotic situation and the idea of having an AR-15 there. And you look at this person who we should, of course, note, as you had Marilyn Mosby on last night talking about this very issue, somebody who is who could have been perceived as an active shooter, approaching the police officers and being told, go home, go home, go home. And he could. And so when you look at this case, it's very difficult to just look at this from the idea of was this person entitled to self-defense? There are so many different aspects of it. The jury is going to have to whittle that down. But the prosecution is facing a very uphill battle here because there's no one to be able to defend or say that Mr. Rosenbaum or his second victim, who were both deceased, what they did. It's all through the lens and the eyes of the person who is now fighting for his life and trial because the two people who'd be able to present testimony as to whether they felt in fear of their lives or they were trying to restrain his use of a weapon, they are now dead. And the only other person, the surviving member, has been has already said that he himself was armed. And so this jury is looking at this uphill battle, probably seeing a little bit of the interactions um, and the tone of the courtroom and the eye towards the prosecution. And then you've got the idea of a young-looking white defendant in America who, who at a time we thought talk about the idea of the Second Amendment and gun rights, all of this is on the backdrop. The prosecution is having a very difficult time. Laura Coates, appreciate you. Couldn't get Marco Mara's computer back up. Uh, we'll have him back, obviously. Thank oh. you for carrying the burden for me. Appreciate Please. you. All right, we're going to move Thank you. Take from it. what happened in the courtroom to those conversations that are going on around this country tonight. Now, take Laura's point the way it's intended. Of course, the jury doesn't make this decision on the basis of how they feel about whether Rittenhouse was there or whether he's white or whether he's that. But the point is, they're human beings. And it's hard 
to look at a situation with the facts and not put any feel into it. Now, let's take a look at those conversations around it, what this case means. We have two views for you. We have left and right in search of being reasonable. We're going to start with one of our most important voices on civil rights. Why does he believe this case is about white supremacy and takes it to a new level? Next. Some look at what's happening and see white vigilantes on trial in two courtrooms, Wisconsin and Georgia. You got Rittenhouse in one, and you got the guys who hunted down and killed Ahmaud Arbery in the other. The juries are going to have to weigh the charges against both. They're going to have to do it in a vacuum. But we're not in the courtroom. And these verdicts are going to play in the real world, in the larger cultural setting. And they're going to ask whether white fright is enough to justify taking a life. Watch this moment in the Arbery case today when a defense attorney objected to exactly who was watching the trial. We don't want any more black pastors coming in here or other Jesse Jackson, whoever was in, was in here earlier this week, sitting with the victim's family trying to influence a jury in this case. And I'm not saying the state is even aware that Mr. Sharpton was in the courtroom. I certainly wasn't aware of it until last night. But I think the court can understand my concern uh, about bringing people in who really don't have any ties to this case other than political interests. He also said Sharpton's presence was intimidating the jury. My next guest is the former president and CEO of the NAACP, Cornell William Brooks. Professor, good to see you. Professor, do you have your uh, sound on? Uh, I do indeed. There you go. We're good. We're good. I can't go 0 for 2. I lost somebody in the last segment. Uh, So, Professor, what do you make of defense counsel's protests about who uh, is watching in court? You know, in a way, this weaponizes the very presence of Reverend Sharpton or any black person. Uh, Reverend Sharpton is a minister. He's a a black pastor, as it were. uh, But he's a human being. Uh, all of us, I would argue, people who are black, white, uh, Latino, Asian, we are tied to these cases as, as fellow citizens. And so to simply say that because a person is black, because they are a pastor, they somehow are intimidating a jury is quite simply ridiculous. Uh, black skin is not a weapon. So in Georgia, uh, in that trial, you've got one member of the jury out of 12 uh, is black. Um, the state is, uh, you know, the numbers should have been about two or three um, for right. it, it to be uh, equivalent to the reflection of society. Georgia as a state only enacted a hate crime law after this situation. What does that tell you about the atmosphere of justice? What it suggests is that we are reactive. In other words, when there's a calamity, when there is a tragedy, in order to keep a lid on a boiling pot, we respond reflexively. And so enacting a hate crime statute in the wake of so many hate crimes and hashtags uh, suggests that we are not appreciating the value of human life. The fact that you have one juror on who's black uh, in the Ahmad Arbery uh, case 
and the fact that the judge admitted intentional discrimination uh, on the part of defense counsel. Says all that you need to know that people have a reason, our fellow citizens have a reason to be distrustful, to be suspicious, to be concerned about the justice system uh, in Georgia and elsewhere when it comes to black lives. You know, in the Kyle Rittenhouse case, in the immediate aftermath of the shootings, uh, even though he didn't shoot any black people, uh, he killed mm -hmm. white people. He shot a third white person who was armed. Um, right. It was treated as if he was the face of white hate. And on the right, mm -hmm. he was the face of white fright and of being victimized by this aggressive minority movement. Mm -hmm. Do you believe right. one of those is the correct way to see him? Um, what I believe is, yes, I believe that uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, along with the murderers down in Brunswick, Georgia, literally represent not, not merely vigilantism, they represent the old-fashioned slave patrol. That is to say, white men who deputized themselves or were deputized by government to literally hunt down black people or white people who sympathize with black people and stood in the gap in terms of preserving and protecting black lives. So the fact that there were three white people who were shot in Kenosha, two of whom died and all of whom were white, does not suggest in any way that this is anything less than a, a racially infused uh, and infected crime. In other words, white people are not safe from white supremacy. The fact of the matter is you had demonstrators who were protesting the fact that Jacob Blake was shot in the back seven times on his son's eighth birthday. The fact that you had all of these people in the area demonstrating, uh, protesting, and we have this young man, 17 years of age, with an AK-47 who self-deputizes himself, self-appoints himself, to go down and ostensibly, supposedly protect but property. What if the jury finds he was being chased, he turned around, somebody reached for the gun, he shot them, mm -hmm. and he was justified? Mm -hmm. Does that remove the onus? Um, I don't think so. And the, and the reason I say that is we can debate whether or not this is a plausible or, in fact, laughable offense. And, you know, after, after all, this is somebody who posed with the Proud Boys, this is somebody who uh, claims that he wants to save lives and serve as a medic, but he didn't turn around to offer any aid to the people he shot. But let's note that. Uh, in against the backdrop of history, which is to say a long line, a long, ugly legacy of literally white people appointing themselves to literally stand in the gap to protect white property, white lives, to the detriment of black property and black lives, or white people who sympathize with those concerns. So the point being is, in terms of the jury of public, and the court of public opinion, Kyle Rittenhouse getting off right, sends a very, very ugly and disturbing message, which is to say that any of us can appoint ourselves to go out and, and gun down our fellow citizens, and particularly white men. This is very disturbing, very unsettling, and the, and the kind of thing that should be disquieting, should be disturbing to not merely black people, but literally Americans of any hue, any heritage, 
because this is completely uh, outrageous and inhumane and unjustified behavior. Thank you, Professor Cornell William Brooks. Pleasure. Thank you for being on the show. Good to be with you, as always. All right. Now, look, as with everything else uh, in our society right now, these things are seen very black and white, uh, literally and figuratively. The left see a villain in the defendant, a vigilante. But for the right, they see a victim. And my next guest is praising the man presiding over the trial as his favorite judge ever. Why? Next. Justice is blind, but the people observing it are not. And these trials, like what happened with George Floyd and then the Derek Chauvin trial, the police officer guilty of his murder, they reverberate beyond the walls of the courthouse. And that's what we see with Kyle Rittenhouse. The bigger implications, certainly for the right and left. It's been completely politicized. And we just talked to a civil rights activist who says, in his eyes, an acquittal will be a signal of a win for white supremacy. Many on the right see this 180 degrees the other way, that this kid shouldn't even be on trial and that what he did was defend himself and he had the right to do that. My next guest says exactly that and in fact believes that he shouldn't be on trial and the prosecutors only did this because they caved to BLM, Black Lives Matter. Let's bring in conservative radio host Mark Davis from 660 AM, The Answer in Dallas-Fort Worth. It's good to see you. Um, Not to seem uh, prejudicial, but one step sideways. This is Veterans Day. Uh, Your father would have been 90 years old. He was a 20-year vet in the Air Force. Um, Thank you for his service and thank you, family, for it. Man, thank you guys for you and the staff for clearly reading my Twitter feed on a number of levels, and I so appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. All right. Well, we're, we're human first. Uh, now let's have uh, the discussion here. Uh, do I have it right that you don't believe Rittenhouse should be on trial, mm. that you believe he did the right thing going there and that uh, he did the right thing in the face of imminent threat of his own life? Now that I've seen the evidence and what a crazy thing that is, waiting to see the evidence, I strongly encourage it. I believe this does belong on the list of events where and you'll see them often where something happens, uh, somebody's in their home, they take some action in self-defense, a a number of things that speak of self-defense. And the authorities look at this and they say, you know, this really does look like self-defense and maybe we don't even prosecute in this case. I believe this smacks of exactly that. And you are also correct in in giving voice to my suggestion that in taking just 48 hours to reach this decision, that this prosecution, which is clearly flailing, is absolutely responding to the streets of Kenosha, which were demanding, and a lot of voices, many of whom you've been hearing tonight, who are just demanding this kid's head on a platter because to not do so would seem to be insensitive to the Jacob Blake shooting. What do you make of the professor's argument that this smacks of, uh, you know, of white men self-deputizing themselves, uh, which is certainly what this kid did, uh, for good reason, bad reason, or no reason, and that it smacks of slave patrols and that he went there because he didn't oh like what gosh. was happening. Um, I and I, I know. that's and what I, brought him there. And that it is uh, it is symptomatic of a problem in this country. I have such respect for Professor Brooks and his civil rights legacy and his uh, diligence in looking at such things. And there's a long legacy going back to the 50s and 60s and, and all the way to the present time. Racism is not dead. It, it hasn't been driven from our society. But civil rights activism in 2021, Chris, 
far too often takes on the following metaphor. When you are a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And there is the notion of, of finding white supremacy absolutely everywhere. And when you find it everywhere, it makes it harder to find it anywhere. The, when everything is racist, nothing is racist. And the real tragedy of a lot of this is, is it's, it's just impossible to, to look at anything without the lens of race being just jammed in your direction. Uh, the professor and, and Laura and her analysis, which I appreciated as well at the top of the show, coming at this from a certain perspective, it's not really 180 degrees different for me because for that 180 degrees different from the professor would be for me to say, I absolutely know race had nothing to do with this. I don't know anything of the kind, but I look for evidence of it and I can't find any evidence of racial animus in anything Kyle Rittenhouse did. And it seems like that's just not a welcome perspective. Why is going to a place that you're not from, joining up with the Proud Boys with an AR-15 not proof of going to a place looking to get into the mix. It is certainly possible that we have a 17-year-old young man here who had a case of uh, junior G-man syndrome, and and no no kid of mine is going to arm up and you know go 30, 40 miles uh, to to do to, to do whatever, however altruistic and noble his intent may be, in the middle of a riot. But that's not what Kyle Rittenhouse is on trial for. The fact of the matter is that he went, and we can like that or not like right. that. What is at issue in the trial is, is he guilty of a homicidal act? And I think this jury is going to say no, and hopefully we can have the kind of peace and resolve that we had there when Derek Chauvin, a very controversial trial, I looked at the Chauvin trial and said, you know, he needs to be convicted of something. I didn't know what, but certainly something. So it's a, it's a crazy revolutionary idea looking at these things on a case-by-case -case basis and taking our in in inherent biases and preconceived notions and maybe, please God, putting a pin in them and looking at the evidence. Mark Davis, I appreciate you. Also, you know, look, for all the talk about his affinity for Proud Boys and that, I uh, personally in reviewing that evidence, I don't know who he was with. He was definitely with a group of white boys. I don't know if they had affiliation or not. Um, the point stands that it is not part of the fact analysis of the trial. Uh, the jury is going to have to look at it. They are human beings, but they're going to have to look at what he did, why they died, and whether or not what was a murder can be justified by self-defense as an affirmative defense. We'll see what they come up with, and then we'll deal with whatever that verdict means to the ongoing battles of division in this country. Mark Davis, appreciate it. That's you. how the system works. Thank you, man. All right. To the legal drama over the Trump White House. Now, this is not getting reported the right way, okay? District court judge says no. They go back to the district court judge. She says, no, I'm not stopping this. I just told you yesterday. They had to check those boxes. They go to the appellate court. The appellate court says, hold on. Uh, National Archive, don't give the documents on Friday. Don't. Give us a second. It is not a decision on the merits. They're saying you have to pause so that we can try the appeal. That's all it is. I'm going to bring in Norm Eisen, but you got to get this stuff right, okay? There has been no decision on the merits. They asked for a pause to decide. They had to do that. Next. We have news, the latest turn in the Trump legal saga and whether or not he'll be able to keep these documents away from Congress in their quest to understand what happened on January 6th. Let's bring in CNN legal analyst Norm Eisen. He won, Norm. He won. That's what I'm reading on Twitter. Trump won. They're not delivering the documents as planned tomorrow. 
Uh, well, Chris, the uh, Twitter uh, diploma of law is not the most valuable certificate. It's the best the, I got. In, in the <laughs> land. Uh, this is what happened today is good news for um, getting these documents into the light of day. It's another success for the committee, uh, and it's a very promising development. Let me tell you why. The, as we talked about yesterday, the court has put in a short, the uh, appellate court has put in a short administrative stay. But rather than the months and years of delay, they have together with that ordered extremely rapid briefing, not on another stay to replace the administrative one, but on the merits. All briefs are going to be due, and we're going to have oral argument before the end of November. Chris, this case was filed on October 18th. That is extraordinary speed. It reflects the importance of the matter. We got three brilliant jurists who will see through Trump's phony claims. So anyone who doesn't think today was a good day for justice is misreading the uh, legal tea leaves. Two of the uh, justices, uh, two of the judges are Obama appointees. One is a Biden appointee. uh, And yet they granted the stay. So they're doing their job. Now, um, the idea of what's going to happen here next. uh, I had colleagues here at CNN say, hey, I don't agree with Cuomo uh, that he doesn't see why the Supreme Court would take this. I think they will. And then I was getting beaten over the head by legal experts who gave me that uh, understanding. They were saying, hey, Cuomo, just because the Supreme Court hasn't reviewed something doesn't mean that it's interesting for their review. What do you think happens with this question if after the appellate court uh, they try to get a grant, a writ of certiorari at the Supreme Court? Um, I don't think this is uh, an attractive case for the Supreme Court, Chris. The merits are lousy. This is not a close question. Uh, As um, Judge Chutkin said in the trial court, um, the the United States only has one president at a time. It's Donald Trump no more. The president is Joe Biden. He makes these decisions. These claims that Trump are making are nonsense. I think the D.C. Circuit is going to give them the back of the hand. This panel is moving quickly because they want to get rid of this case. And I just think it is unlikely, never say never, but it's unlikely that the Supreme Court takes up these junk arguments. Norm Eisen, you are a gift and now you will get many because your birthday is upon us. Happy birthday, Norm Eisen. You got the best hair in the business. So whatever age you are, you got hair looks 22. Thank Thanks, you very Chris. much, Counselor. I appreciate you. Your insight is a gift. Thank you for being a gift to this show, and I wish you the best for your birthday. Appreciate it. All right. Be well. When we come back, there's one issue that matters most to voters and that Democrats in power are clearly sleeping on. The Wizard of Oz with a giant wake-up call. That face says wake up. Next. Inflation means you pay more for stuff. Yet, for all politicians telling you what it means, almost none of them know what they're saying. Inflation is a coefficient of three things. The amount of money that's available, how much we want to buy, demand, and how much there is for us to buy, supply, okay? We collectively have more cash in our pockets than any time since the 80s. I know you're saying not me. I'm saying there is a ton of money in the economy right now. And that is going to affect things. As a whole, 
We've also been able to save more during the course of the pandemic. Again, I know you're saying not me. It's a very unequal distribution. I'm talking about the gross amount of dollars, okay? Now, that seems wrong because just today we learned Americans have never been more in debt. That's why I get it. I get it. That's because even though there's more money in circulation, thanks to years of keeping borrowing rates low through quantitative easing, remember Q1, QE2, QE3, and buying up trillions in bonds during the pandemic, that money is not evenly dispersed. A situation made worse by the Trump tax cut, which comes with an estimated $1.9 trillion cost. Bottom line, all that extra money did not go to you. I get it but it means your money won't go as far. We're still trying to buy a lot more stuff, a reality that's only expected to increase by around 7% as we head into the holidays. But as you know, it takes longer for that stuff to get here now, right? With the supply chain problem. That situation didn't just start either. Remember last year when the supply chain was so messed up, farmers were destroying their crops? Meanwhile, Trump's trade war is still in place to the tune of $106 billion paid by American importers and passed on to... Fixes, like making it more expensive to borrow, risk raising the cost of a mortgage, which means fewer people buying homes and fewer jobs in areas like construction. That's the problem, okay? Inflation comes on for a lot of reasons, and no matter what you do to fix it, you cause new ones. Let's talk to politics with the Wizard of Odds. Harry Enton, what do you got? Look, I go on Twitter a lot. I'm sure you visit. I see you replying to people, and people go, oh, you know, inflation's not that bad. Tell that to the American public, because at this particular point, what do we see? We ask them, are things at the grocery store, everyday items costing more? Look at that. 83% say yes. Has those increases caused hardship for your family? Look at that. 70% of Americans say at least some minor hardship. So this is something that Americans are really feeling. And when you ask them, you know, what are you extremely concerned about right now? What do we see? We see inflation, number one, 53%. It's the only thing that gets a majority. You know, we just passed this infrastructure package. Just 27% of Americans are extremely concerned about that. It's so low on the list. I actually had to cut it off of the top six or seven there. And then infrastructure is all the way down there, 27. Inflation, inflation, inflation. That's the number one concern. Well, we always say infrastructure, everybody loves it except the voters. Um, They want it. They don't like the price tags. Um, and it's just not an issue that they usually vote on, that, and that's, that's proven there. Now, is inflation at the top of the list, Harry, because it's being talked about so much and weaponized? I don't think so, because the fact of the matter is, part of that little poll that I had on that first slide was actually something that was from August. Part of it was from August. Part of it was from October. This is something that the American public has seen for a long period of time, and it's taken time for the politicians to actually recognize that, and I think in all honesty, that result in Virginia last week may have played some role in that. Uh, let's go to the next slide. Uh, inflation is the biggest issue. Uh, this Look is this. hurting Biden. Yeah. I mean, here, it's part of the bigger economic issue, right? But look, Biden isn't doing enough about, and this is the top three issues that are listed. Mm-hmm. Look at what's number one here. It's inflation at 60%. This is number one. It's the number one thing they're most concerned about. It's the number one thing that Biden, they feel Biden's not doing a good job on. And if you think for a second that voters aren't going to reward Republicans because they think they're the best option, you only really get two. Look at this. If you flip the slide four, you see 
Who would do a better job on inflation? Look at this large gap. 45% say the Republican Party. Just 21% say the Democratic Party. There are some voters in there who basically say neither or both. But this is one of the largest issue examples for Republicans that are out there. And the fact is, you can expect them to ride that hard over the next year, especially heading into the midterm election. Boy, oh boy, you know who's going to be talking about this? Joe Manchin. Yeah. Because this was his big objection to those support payments. Let's see how that plays in the Democrat ranks and how they divide. Harry Anton, thank you. Appreciate you. Where are the compliments about my nice hair? You have a good head of hair. There's no question about it. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's not real, though. People don't know that. So we'll keep it. Uh, It takes one to know one. (laughs) I wish. (laughs) All right. We'll be right back with the handoff. All right, thank you very much for watching. It's time for the big show, Don Lemon Tonight with its big star, D. Lemon. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.